Today's show is brought to you in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. In appreciation of our guests' participation, we have made a contribution to the following organization on their behalf. We are Metagroup, a secular Buddhist meditation community with a special focus on meditation-based attachment repair. If you'd like more information about our work, you can find us at www.metagroup.org. And then later, about around three months to nine months, actually around nine months, we have the right orbital frontal cortex coming online. And that is what Shore calls the apex of the limbic system and the attachment control center. And that's the area that's being brought to fruition by way of the mother's eye contact with the infant. When she's cradling the infant, typically on the left, you get a right brain to right brain communication. That part of the brain is coming online. It has to be robust for empathy. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today we'll be speaking with Australian singer, songwriter, and pop icon, Sia. Her song, Elastic Heart, was a third single from her breakthrough album, 1000 Forms of Fear, which debuted at number one on the Billboard charts. Also joining us today is psychotherapist and attachment theory expert, Dr. Alexandra Katahakis. Attachment theory seeks to explain how the earliest parent-child relationship emerges and influences subsequent behavioral and cognitive development. Attachment dysfunction can often manifest in later life as any number of pathologies, including sex and love addiction. And Alex is recognized as a leader in the field of its treatment. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is Elastic Heart, Attachment Theory and the Malleability of the Infant Psyche. Hello, Sia and Alex. Look at you. Hi, Matt. Hi, Matt. I'm impressed. Oh, aren't you the affable guest? <laughs> your song, Elastic Heart, is my favorite of your smash hits. Oh, okay. That's good to know. For a number of reasons. I get some like reggaeton delivery in there, uh, secret lover of trap music. And it's a it's a really full production, which I'm a sucker for. And I think it's also fair to say that it adheres to your victim to victory songwriting template. Yeah. How did you land on that formula? Oh, that's sorry, that's Dingus drinking in the background as well. He's uh, my apologies. <laughs> Quite loud. <laughs> <laughs> he's everything dingus dugs is loud okay he's still going so uh yeah so what was the question victim Sorry. To, oh, victim how did to you betray. land on that formula well i i think i just realized it was working and also it was working on me i, I realized recently is that i was trying to keep myself alive and that oftentimes i was writing like a letter to myself to keep going and so I think that I was like, I've found this victim to victory template because it was an easy way to explain without having to become vulnerable and say uh, that it, those things feel real to me. Mm. It's interesting because, you know, I think what most people think of when your name comes up is 
the trademark wig that you wear that conceals your face. And I mean, though you have carefully guarded your privacy in that respect, to me, your your song lyrics and interviews alike are decidedly more candid and, and vulnerable. But you're saying that the lyrics, that too felt like a conduit through which you could express yourself anonymously. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I think when, when asked, when asked, I was able to uh, say, it's a formula. I'm a genius. It's a formula. It works yeah. so fabulously, but actually it was just like a fearful avoidance strategy. Mm. <laughs> Again, it was, it, was, it was like, come here, go away. <laughs> come here, go away. Bait and switch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I'm such a sucker for the production, did the, I'm curious, did that come to you fleshed out? Fully fleshed out. And I Diplo sent it to me. And I remember I wrote to him straight away and said, do not give that to anyone else. I want to really, really. And I, I've never done that before. Mm. Said, don't give that track to anyone else. And he said, I have sent it to Dr. Luke. And I said, please tell him that it's taken already. And he was like, okay. Because I was like, I'm going to do something over this. I love it. It was. And did you, you do something in that moment? Yeah. I just wrote the song over it that afternoon. Although I can't remember what I was feeling at the time or who what relationship I was in or yeah <laughs> uh, I know that at the time it had been caused by one of those romantic intrigue situations whereby I did not know that there was a whole lot of mystery around I didn't know you could ask someone like what are we or there was so much ambiguity around things because as a classic for a full avoidant I just hoped for crumbs and mm. and would live with them and just the last five years have been so amazing because of SLA and because of all of the attachment work that I've done learning yeah. learning things like that I can ask at the end of a date how was that how was that for you yeah well it's interesting I don't think it's such a stretch to say that a lot of ideas related to attachment theory come up in your lyrics like <laughs> Elastic Heart talks about needing to lose yourself in another person, <laughs> seeing love as something that, that you conquer rather than experience, the whole thick skin self-protection, which also comes up in Titanium and Chandelier. You're so well-versed in this whole thing. I just, And I also know, like I was listening to you on Tim Ferriss, and I know how important it is to you to get information about attachment theory out into the world. So I'm curious as to why you've sort of taken that mantle on? I think because it took so long to understand in the first place. You know, it's because it's so heady. And and so it took me almost two years just to understand the very basics, that there are five attachment strategies that we form in the first three years of our life and that they basically shape how we view ourselves in the world, how we view ourselves in relationship to another person. And how we respond when we go off what I call offline, like when we stop functioning in a rational way and become reactive and using one of those strategies that we learned as an infant to placate or survive with our primary caregiver. So for so long, I was just like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And it was helpful to become aware when I would slip into a strategy, uh, become aware of what strategies I used in order to protect myself or to survive, yeah. which were now no longer skillful. They were skillful growing up in order to survive, but not skillful for a living in today's world and living 
being present in the moment with another person and how uncomfortable that can be but how rewarding it is. And then also I'd only ever attracted dismissive, sociopathic, narcissistic, or when I was drinking I used to attract preoccupied people. So yeah. it was fascinating. And when I stopped drinking, I, then I only attracted a super dismissive people, yeah. D1s. And so I think that just learning about all the different attachment strategies has been brilliant fun mm -hmm. because isn't it fun to pathologize people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So easy to do. I think one of my favorite emotions is smug. made me feel like I I understood a little bit more about life what was happening like well, I don't know it just felt like oh I'm not in the dark like yeah. I, this is something I can get with because it's science yeah and as I understand it you're not alone because it's endemic Alex you when you and I first spoke you told me that this is a problem that has gotten worse since the 70s and re requires public attention Yes. In the 70s, we had approximately 75% secure attachment in the U.S. And now it's 30. And today it's around 50 or oh. below. Yeah. That's if you take out poverty, right? Sure. So when tasked, Alex, how do you introduce the concept of attachment theory? How do you define it to the uninitiated? Well, I think it's important to understand deeply sort of the neuropsychobiology of the developing human organism. And that developmental psychology and affective neuroscience studies infants and infant mental health and what's happening in the third trimester of pregnancy. So this mm. goes all the way back. Um, and these are biological directives. So it's not a personal opinion. And there's no way to argue this if you really study what happens in the development of the human organism. So Bowlby first talked about, Sir Richard Bowlby in the 60s, about a secure base and attachment theory, which was more of a, a behavioral theory that the child was seeking security from the primary caregiver, which is typically the mother. But in the recent past, as early as 1990, Alan Shore started talking about attachment theory as a theory of regulation. And so that means, is the infant being attended to by the primary caregiver when it's upset? Is it being soothed? Is it being fed? Um, are these happening in contingent and appropriately timed ways so the infant is getting its needs met? And prior to attachment is intersubjectivity, and which is co-created between the mother and the infant. And so we can only have a mind if we have another person helping to co-create or cultivate that mind because the mind is in the body-mind. We're just not these talking heads. Mm. So this is a bit of a digression, but if you've ever seen torture victims you know, on TV, whether it's on 60 Minutes or a news clip or something, um, they'll tell you that they, quote, lost their minds because their bodies could not tolerate the amount of assault that was coming at it. Mm. And likewise, with infants and toddlers and small children and teenagers, and even adults, if the assault is big enough, well, we can't tolerate what's coming in through the central nervous system through all five senses. 
our higher cortical functions uncouple from our lower cortical functions, from subcortical and down into the body. And that's when you get dissociation, high levels of dysregulation, or babies that are disorganized in the way C is talking about. So could you actually just give me a quick review on parts of the brain? What is subcortical like? Just the different parts of the brain? Well, when we're born, we have a body. So in the beginning, there's the body. And the body is organized by way of the autonomic nervous system because we have three nervous systems. We have the enteric nervous system, which is our gut and our viscera, the autonomic nervous system, which organizes the body, and then the central nervous system, which is the brain and the spinal cord. So an infant is born with a body and the amygdala, which is the subcortical center of our brain that's highly emotional. It's where we register fear, also experience love, but it is not concrete in its thinking. So the infant is laying down memory in tracks in this amygdala, specifically the right amygdala. So the mother's face, if the mother's face is angry, if she registers disgust, that is not the kind of memory we associate with the hippocampus, which is declarative. It's what we call implicit or unconscious. So we can we register it and we feel it in the body. Yeah. Okay. So you speak a lot about the neurochemical development and how that is affected by early caregiving. Could you tell us about some of that and how that figures into attachment theory? Well, sure. I mean, when you have a mother who is secure, what Winnicott called a good enough mother, because a perfect mother would be weird, mm -hmm. um, right? There yeah. would be no ruptures, no. no repairs. We wouldn't learn to tolerate no in the world. Mm -hmm. yeah. But when the infant, and typically more the toddler, is starting to reach these highly valenced, excitatory states... And you see this in babies, certainly in infants, but more around three months when the cingulate is online. And there are shared pleasure states and recognition, like the baby recognizes the mother or the father, their face lights up. Typically, the mother, and again, the primary caregiver, sees that highly valent state and she amplifies it. And there are these crescendos and decrescendos. So a good mother is amplifying those play states. And when the baby's had enough because their nervous system can only take so much, the baby will start to downregulate and the mother goes down with the baby. And this is building capacity for pleasure. And these are high dopamine states. These are excitatory states that you see in the infant. And that dopamine tone is necessary. You can feel it in the body. If you've ever given somebody a hug and they're just kind of collapsed, Right? They don't meet you back with you know, their striated muscles, like a tight, good hug. That person is often depressed, dissociated. They've got low tonicity in the body. So that excitatory state is necessary for shared pleasure. But also, you don't want to keep the baby or force the baby into that state because that's going to get them dysregulated. And then you could create a very anxious child over time. So the instinctual parent is riding these nonverbal waves, what we call a, a, a paralinguistic or a conversation, a proto-conversation. So it's all happening without words. Yeah. And we know that 65% of communication is nonverbal, but so much communication takes place between us as adults, as lovers, as friends, in this, the realm of the nonverbal. 
what we're feeling between each other, the contagion of laughter. And this is also a part of what's been so horrendous about COVID and all the isolation last year, is that we haven't had this excitatory connection with each other. Mm. Yeah. And when you talked about down downregulating, is that have something to do with the, the sympathetic or parasympathetic systems? Yes. So the sympathetic system is excitatory, and that's our fight or flight system. And so when we're in danger, we're either going to fight or we're going to run. And that's designed for survival. And when children are abused in whatever way, whether it's neglect or abuse, they oftentimes don't have the opportunity to run or to fight back, which leads to you know, moderate to severe dissociation. If right now there was an earthquake, since we're all in California, mm-hmm. we wouldn't stop and think about or say to each other, do you think we should, like, should we end this conversation now? <laughs> we would just get up and run, right? <laughs> because that's how the organism is set up. If we're in too much distress, if the child's in too much distress, it's crying, nobody's coming to its aid over and over again, it's not being soothed, then eventually the crying stops because the parasympathetic system tries to downregulate the sympathetic system. And when it can't, there's a free state. And where there's a free state, you no longer have adrenaline and dopamine. Now you've got noradrenaline and you've got opioids washing in, which is an analgesic that prepares us to die. It's a cold limbic shutdown. Yes, that too. But autonomically, it is the parasympathetic and the vagal break shutting everything down. And if you think about being tortured, or if you're a cave person and you're on the savanna running and you're trying to outrun the lion and eventually, you know, it's catching you and you're out of breath and you can't run anymore, at some point you're going to freeze and those opioids wash in so that when it eats you, it's probably not as painful would be my guess. I've never had the experience, but I'm pretty sure that's how it works. That's, and, and our, yeah, go on. And the cortical unhooks, uncouples from the subcortical. So there's no thinking anymore. It's just, you're just in a purely animalistic state. It's so phenomenal because that's described exactly how it used to feel when I would text someone who had captured my projection. Mm-hmm. So someone that I was, uh, I had decided was going to be my romantic primary attachment partner, let's say. And if they weren't texting me back or I couldn't get a hold of them and my brain, because I didn't have that, like the, the caregiver coming. um, And I went into limbic, limbic shutdown so regularly that my adult body would experience the exact same feelings as the, as the infant and I would have all the same neurochemicals dump into my system and I'd think, why do I feel like I'm dying? Oh, wow. And it was so fascinating to find out that that I, my body just would mimic the exact experience it had with this projection, this person who'd captured my projection, and to realise, okay, I, I'm not crazy, I'm not sick, and, I mean, I have a, a attachment injury. This is called something called object constancy, which I learned about. Right. And maybe you could help people understand what that is because to understand what that was was so relieving because I thought, oh, I'm not, cra- I'm not a crazy person, a crazy girl. Right, and I think that's important is that... Um... 
you know, these are not just psychological issues. They are neurobiological constructs. You're not just a crazy girl. And because you didn't have consistent tending to as an infant and small child, that leaves for a very disorganized system internally uh, because we inherit our mother's nervous systems, essentially, because she's downloading her nervous system into that infant in utero in the third trimester. If you've got a mother that's stressed out or anxious or depressed or being beat, all of that neurochemistry is activated in her body. And there is an intersubjective communication between mother and infant that's neurochemical at that point. So when that baby's born, it's a wash in those neurochemicals. And then her capacity to be able to take care of or regulate that infant is what is being transmitted to the infant. So there are our genetics and then our epigenetics, which is um, the impact of the environment on the genes. So, And those genes will express depending on what the environment is doing in that moment. So when you think about an environment for the evolution of a secure baby, you need a high level of synchronization between the mother and the infant, right? Eye contact, Achievement. right? The tone of her voice, touch, gesture, all of that is the nonverbal conversation taking place between the two. And if she's not exquisitely attuned to that infant, there are going to be problems because the, the infant requires that in order to start to come to fruition, so a lack of a capacity to feel alive where there's no safe place is what I think you were talking about, Sia. And because there was no safe face, there was no safe other there for you consistently. It was inconsistent. It was. Um, my mother suffered from postnatal depression. So actually, mm. my father was my primary caregiver, uh, which is a very unusual, I've, I've heard. But I mean, the fact is, is that she was so, so sick with depression that she couldn't even, she couldn't be good wow. enough. Yeah. To, so dad had to step in. And I mean, my dad was psychotic. <laughs> so, and I say that laughingly. But, but is he, that true? Was, was he really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it was terrifying. Of course. Now I, now I can see when I, have communicate with him as an adult, I'm like, I can only imagine what that was like for an infant. Yeah, well, impossible because what really happens... Really scary. There's, yeah, there's a pervasive and chronic sense of non-being. There mm. is no self able to develop there because you've got an empty self that's matching that infant. And the core self is formed in these early, early months and without that core self being formed, you're going to get into trouble. And that is comprised of, you know, the amygdala first, as you said, and then it moves up to the insula, the cingulate, and the right orbital frontal. But that core self is crucial to stability. And it's only later that a subjective self starts to form, really, again, around the nine-month period, where I have a sense of myself in relation to other, but as an infant, there, there's none of that. To what degree is an infant a blank slate? I would say it's largely completely a blank slate. And so the argument about, about is it nature or is it nurture, I think has long been solved that it's both and. 
And, you know, every child is has a different disposition. Again, we have different genetics, but if I'm genetically predisposed to something that's a weakness, but I've got a caregiver that can circumvent that somehow, I'll probably be okay. Okay. One thing that I heard, who's the guru in this field? Um, Which field? Dan Brown? No. Um, God damn it. Uh, he's from Eastern Europe. Um, oh, Gabor Mate? Gabor Mate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's not, he's not. He's the guru he's, in a, the field of addiction. Okay, okay. He was saying that there's no identifiable gene for mental illness. Is that true? Yeah, I don't know about that. I just know that these early communications are the core of all psychopathology. Mm. And so, again, if somebody has a predisposition, let's say, to schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, if they have a contingently appropriately attuning parent, they may not have as much difficulty in that area. Or if it's strictly a genetic situation, they will. But I think it's hard to generalize those things. And when does the window of opportunity shut for a parent, you know, about when you can still shape these things? Well, I think Dan Siegel talks about this in his book, Brainstorm, right? You know, he talks about the teen years. But when we're talking about, you know, these early infantile structures, the right brain is developing for the first 18 months. And those 18 months are crucial. And that's why it's so disturbing that the United States of America, which is supposedly one of the number one industrialized countries in the world, has no maternal care, no maternity leave, no maternal care whatsoever. We have people dumping infants two, three months old into daycare with multiple caregivers. I mean, it's just, it's actually criminal what we do to our children in this country and our mothers. And that's one of the main reasons we have this slipping insecure attachment is because we don't have support for mothers and fathers. I mean, even in France, the fathers get, I think, three months paternity leave. Yeah. Right. And they provide them with, you know, bus passes and yeah. you know, help. All in the Iceland, around. they get six. Ima yeah. Imagine that. <laughs> wow. Speaking of France, I've got this half-baked theory that I want to run by you. Okay. Yeah, go. <laughs> okay. So before my first daughter was born, someone suggested I get this book called Bringing Up Bebe. Are you familiar with it? I don't know that book, no. It's basically, it's about an American woman who has a baby. She, I think she has the baby in Paris, and she's horrified at how... American babies behave in comparison to French babies. French babies are far more agreeable and adults have these independent lives. Mm -hmm. And the book kind of becomes this platform for the philosophy of this um, New York-based French pediatrician, okay? Mm -hmm. And fr said French pediatrician has gone on to spawn this constellation of practices in the city. And incidentally, I brought my first daughter to one of these practices, you know, and they, uh -huh. they're heavy on sleep training and things like this. And mm. at a certain point, um, and I, and I read the book and I got what it was saying. These French families can stay up and have wine and late dinners and the children don't bother them. And American children are needy and they rule their parents' lives and stuff like this. And don't get me wrong. This practice was great. We got a lot out of it. However, at a certain point when they kept harping on this the kid is walking all over you. You know, you've got to assert yourself more. It occurred to me that though French babies may be more 
agreeable on the whole, French babies turn into French adults who, in my experience, <laughs> tend to be some of the more disagreeable people I've met. <laughs> right. Well, that may have more to do with the culture than how they treat their babies. Because I was recently heard David White, who's an extraordinary poet, talking oh, yeah. about the He's French yeah. and about how they're very, very precise with their language. Mm. And they get offended if you don't use precise language and how different that is in maybe more Latin cultures. Mm -hmm. And so that level of precision is baked into the language and the culture. So it may have more to do with that okay. um, than anything. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> um, how about, can I ask you, Matt, with the sleep training? Because yeah. I know that there's ways to do it that aren't damaging and there's ways to do it that are severely damaging. Yeah. So my hope is that, <laughs> is that this way was not the damaging way. What do you, Did you get to the point, the seven phases, correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, a baby, when it needs something, it will look cute first, then it will look confused, then it will whimper, then it will intermittently cry, cry, tantrum, and then go into limbic shutdown. Mm -hmm. So you want to get to them when they're only intermittent crying. You don't want them to get to any of these last three. Yeah, and, I mean, that was, go ahead. And just that you want to intercept them as they get to intermittent crying or whimpering and just say, hi, Sophie, or whatever your kid's name mm -hmm. is. I love you. Mm -hmm. I'm right out and I'm going to be right outside, but it's time to go to sleep now and then go outside and then go back in it when they get to intermittent crying again. It's time to go to sleep now. So it's mm -hmm. more work. But the whole leaving children to cry until they go into limbic shutdown, people are like, it works. And it's like, no, it doesn't. Your child just thought it thinks it's dying and so gives up and stops asking for help anymore. Well, that was the fallacy of Dr. Spock in the 50s where, you know, the direction was to let your baby cry it out. Mm -hmm. And what happens is the baby is actually dissociating. Mm. So you've got, again, a disconnect happening in these circuits between the brain and the body. And so the baby starts to look like a good baby, but really you've got you know, serious dissociation taking place. And it's a level of cruelty. And with even with older children, it is about soothing them, holding them, telling them it's going to be okay. So being able to set limits and boundaries um, while also attending to their dysregulation is what's required. And right, that's the thing also in our culture is that having a baby is easy. Raising a baby is a whole different story. And people think that they can just get on with their life as it was, but it's enormously taxing and a huge responsibility. And we don't value motherhood in our country also. We sort of, I don't know if we feel sorry for people, but if you meet someone and they are a mom, you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Mm. You know, that's sort of the implied thing that, you know, if you have a big career, that's great. Mm. Um, and so I think what women have tried to do is have big careers and have children at the same time. And we're not doing that well with that. It's a struggle. Mm. I didn't have children specifically because I didn't want to fuck anybody up. Yeah, yeah um, you and me both. Yeah, and then <laughs> and now I finally earned Secure when I took another AAI, and so I, I uh -huh. found out that I took three along the way, but I found out I was Secure, and and now I I would consider it. But I'm mm. 45, but I'm right. I'm like now I'm considering. Sure. Could I, could I now that I I understand what it really takes to be present and attuned 
mm-hmm. to a little tiny human computer right that that is your job it's your job that's right to help their brain develop I'm really interested to hear about testing and also something I've heard you talk about, uh, attachment repair. I mean, first, I want to answer your question, which is, I think we tried to adhere to the method of periodically going in. I mean, the disposition of my eldest daughter is such that that would just really get her going again. Um, so I, to, in truth, I don't know how well we did it. I don't know like when, I mean, she would fall asleep and I don't entirely remember how that went. The The plan we were trying to follow was the go in and try and soothe them, but it, it just didn't work. It just kind of like kicked up the tornado again with her. It's very, it's a very controversial thing yeah. and, and one that, you know, is hard to do perfectly, obviously. Right. I can't even imagine. And I, as I'm sitting here as a woman without a child who's like all misjudgy about sleep training. And I, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, that's not fair. You've never been kept up all night or three nights in a row by a child. <laughs> no, for sure. That's part of it. And you, you don't come across as such. And, and, okay, and actually what I was trying to lead you into saying earlier was something I heard you say on Tim Ferriss, which was that the reason why you want people to know about these things is so there's less psychopaths in the world. Yeah, I would love that. That would be amazing. Mm. And because I know that it creates some of the just most harmful personality disorders, borderline narcissistic and antisocial personality disorders. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these are neglected children there was one moment between me being a psychopath and and me getting the care that I needed was one might have been one day yeah that, that right. I where someone came and picked me up mm-hmm. and and it was that was the line between me becoming sociopath and me being a disorganized mm-hmm. uh, unresolved fearful scared avoidant person because mm-hmm. John Bowlby talked about that you know he said that it was the cook that attuned to him, because he came from a very privileged wow. family. Wow. So, you know, there's always a cook. There's always one person. My Dan grandpa. Siebel says all we need, right, is one secure attachment figure, right, because those structures and functions will become blighted if the child is not getting the input it needs, you know, through the face, through the body, through the olfactory, through the auditory. Um, and it's just extraordinary see that somebody you know was there for you in the midst of this chaos uh, because the infant can't form any kind of you know sense of self without this proto conversation going on you know it has to be stimulated for these structures and functions to keep growing and coming online i mean look at what happened with the romanian orphans if you remember that the romanian orphanages can you tell us about that well, I think it was, when was that? In the 1980s, I think? Yeah. They were left Maybe it was with- the 90s. But, you know, there was a dictator there whose name I can't remember now. But when they went into the orphanages, they found that these children had been just essentially tethered to beds with no caregivers whatsoever. And the ones in the back of the ward had less fMRI activity in their brains than the ones that were tied by the door because the ones tied by the door could hear the footsteps going back and forth. 
That was the amount of stimulation that they were getting. And I think there was an NPR show on this several years ago where they, they followed these children and they were interviewing them now as they were young adults to see how they came out of this. But some of them really, really struggled emotionally for a very long time because they just got nothing. And neglect is worse than uh, intrusiveness. So being neglected like that is far worse than a borderline mother that's constantly in the baby's face and always stimulating the baby and inappropriate with the baby. At least they're getting something. Have they seen this happen in any other mammals? I would imagine there are studies. I mean, I know there have been on primates. Yeah, the primate will die. The baby. Yeah, they fail to thrive. If you leave a, a primate in the forest for, I think it's less, less within less than 24 hours, it will die. Because it's not getting the... Touch, stimulation, attunement, food. There's no core self-forming. There's no interactive exchange taking place. Grooming, touching, cooing, riding on its mother's back, whatever it does. They just fail to thrive and die which is what happens with human babies also. Mm -hmm. You know, you're talking about following these, the Romanian children. What do we know about possibilities for redemption? What about attachment repair? Well, I think Sia is a living, breathing example of attachment <laughs> repair. Yeah, it's really hard. And as an adult, you have to want it and you have to mm -hmm. really, really want it. And you have to swim through the darkest depths of uh, pools of sadness and activation of neurodevelopmental trauma and the sort of your neuroception like lighting up all the time and seeing danger and then like overcoming that and becoming aware of what's your neuroception and what's reality and there's so much to it and it does take a, a lot of work and it took me five years um, of work. Which isn't long, thanks. given that you're 45, Yeah, right? thanks. That makes me feel good. Yeah, I've heard it, it can take It isn't long at a, all. Yeah, but it was painful. It's the hardest five of years of my life, yes. definitely. Yeah. Like, and now it's very interesting because all I wanted to be was to be secure, and now I'm very early in my security, mm -hmm. and I'm like, this is boring. <laughs> <laughs> right. Addiction, addicts love their addiction, right? But I think that's what we see is that people end up as addicts yeah. or, you know, in prison or criminally insane or what have you. This is all mental illness, you know, for the most part. And so my expertise is not in infant mental health. It is in sex and love addiction. And so when we, you know, see adult women and men that are love addicts, that's those are profound attachment disturbances from early, early on, pre-verbally. Um, and it's looking for love in all the wrong places, as the old song goes. Like anywhere, anywhere at all. Anywhere, right? Anyone will do anywhere. Any, yeah. It's like Dr. Seuss. Yeah. Are you my mother? Are you my mother? Yeah. Yeah. Are you my lover? Yeah. <laughs> right? So that intensity gets confused for intimacy. And people repeatedly choose bad people because they're replicating what they got and what they can tolerate. See, was talking about crumbs. So if someone's listening and they identify with what you've described, Sia, as your experience with your family of origin, yeah. and they also identify as, as an addict or having hang-ups to varying degrees, what steps can they take towards healing? Well, personally, I did a lot of meditation and I worked with the Meta Group in Los Angeles, and that's uh, George Haas, who 
is the meditation teacher at the Meta Group, and they are a attachment repair focused meditation center. And uh, that's how I learned everything I know. And uh, I know sometimes I've misquoted things and, you know, so I, I always just deferred anyone who was interested in attachment repair to get in touch with them. They have a bunch of people that you can start seeing um, either remotely or not remotely. And there's a new thing that is making it faster. If you want shortcuts, which don't mm-hmm. we all? Yeah. <laughs> uh, shortcut to security is called Idealized Parent Figure Protocol. So they're doing a study into that right now, but there's really good data on that. And, and it should uh, there should be a couple of good proof studies coming out about I, ideal, IPF, Idealized Parent Figure Protocol. It's a therapy? Yeah, it's where you basically imagine the perfect caregivers, uh-huh. like perfect for you, and you go back in time to any of your traumatic events and they arrive just after the traumatic event and they give you the care that you needed and then they can mm-hmm. arrive before the traumatic event and prevent the traumatic event from occurring and come and swoop you away and give you the care that you need and your brain doesn't notice the difference between uh, reality and fantasy. So you can heal some of those moments by it's like create it's creating ideal parent figures wow. inside of you, self states, I yeah. guess. That and you have to like come up. It's really hard to come up with like, oh, how would what do I need? What what would I need in that moment? What would have helped me in that moment? Because when you don't get it, you don't know what you're missing, and you don't know. But if you just allow your mind to explore usually as like a secure solution will pop up and otherwise you can have guidance from anyone who's helping you and it's a protocol and I like protocol based therapies because then you're not relying on the person on a person because we're also fallible yeah attachment theory is so it's just based on science and based on reality and I like that IPF is based on on a protocol and that you can apply the protocol anyone can apply the protocol and they can still get good results. Yeah. Okay, cool. We've got a couple more minutes, but anything else that we should talk about anything, either of you would like to make sure that you get across. Well, I would like to thank you, Alex, because Mm. I was suicidal after my divorce, just severely, um, like bad. It was really bad. And, um, yeah, and I listened to your uh, webinars, the Mirror of Intimacy mm. webinars, and I shared them, even though that's not 12-step approved. <laughs> <laughs> I shared them. I got in trouble at meetings for sharing them <laughs> mm. <laughs> because they were that. not 12-step approved, <laughs> but they should be. And uh, I wrote a letter to the 12-step <laughs> Academy. <laughs> saying this should be part of the approved reading because so sweet. i didn't know you were my publicist i had no idea i have so many people who are sponsees or who who are just fellows in program who ha- you have now saved their lives or their relationships oh because they went to see you because of the web just because i had them listen to the webinars because mm-hmm. the things that you explain on there are 
if you're secure, you're going to know how to behave. You know how to behave. You know how what's typical, and you know how to ask for your needs to be met, and you know how to negotiate in a relationship, and you know what's fair and reasonable, and what's not. You know what's healthy, what's unhealthy. When right. you grow up with an attachment disturbance, you have no idea what is normal. You don't yeah. know what a normal relationship looks like, in, and so your webinars were so helpful. Like even just saying, you know, if I remember one of your webinars, you talk about someone putting their shoe, your husband putting his shoes in the way all the time. Mm. And, and eventually you say, saying um, the consequences, I'm going to sleep in here until you can learn to put your shoes in the other room or something like, I can't remember, but I remember it was, I was like, Oh my God, you can ask for somebody to move their shoes. I just remember like that, that was bit, that was a reasonable request. It wasn't an unreasonable request or something as simple as, well, story. I think it was about it was about um, you know how you figure out whether something has you out of your integrity or it's it's a negotiation you can make. Like, what does it really cost you to move your shoes? Yeah, um, and, and for the good of the whole. Ah, and I the dry cleaning. The, yes, you had another one yes. with the dry cleaning. Like, even though <laughs> it will make you late, even though it will make right. you late, it's obviously very meaningful to that person. So, what's yes. the cost? Just basic stuff I learned, so much basic stuff that I learned by listening to the Mirror of Intimacy webinars. That Well, thank you. Yeah, I, thank you. That's heartening and I appreciate it. Seriously. Yeah, and I guess I, I just want to add that for those people that struggle with sex and love addiction to understand that you're not a bad person, you're not immoral, you're not dirty or broken, that it makes good sense that you're doing what you're doing because these are adaptive strategies in the brain and in the body and that there is help, that you can get help in 12-step fellowships. There are lots and lots of people treating this problem today and that you're really just replicating what you know. And typically sex and love addicts want to connect so deeply, but they don't have the capacity for it. So they choose people that are their equal in large part. You know, water seeks its own level. And this painful feeling of, I want more than this, but I can't get it, is probably the biggest clue that it's time to get help. And so don't feel shameful about getting help. There's lots of help out there today. And you can change your life. And it's free. And it's a 12-step program. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the best it's part free. about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's got a terrible name. I, I just wish that we could call it healthyrelationships.com or something. That would well, be, Because, like, you know, it scared me off. Of course. When Dr. Drew was like, well, have you ever thought that you might be a sex and love addict? I was like, absolutely not. And no way am I. Right. And then I spoke to you on the telephone. I was like, yeah, I don't think I am one. Or And then I think later I was like, oh, my gosh, I must be one. Because I went to a meeting <laughs> and I was like, oh, everyone's telling my story again. And then I came to try and meet you for a meeting. And, uh, yeah, I think... Uh, uh, it's so phenomenal to be able to get over yourself and to to get over the idea of like the shame of being uh, of describing yourself as a sex and love addict. Well, I think it's helpful to think about that the word the definition of the word addiction just means a strong predilection for something. Right. So you can be addicted to anything, chocolate, ice cream, your cell phone, yoga, helping yoga pants, people, helping people. <laughs> I mean, you name it. So it's not a bad word. It just means I like doing it a lot. Yeah. Sometimes too much. It makes me sick. Yeah, mm. it's true. That's that's a good one. There's lots of help out there and and it's available to everyone.
Thank you, guys. This has been so tremendous. Yeah, I love you. Uh, uh, I love you. I'm, I've known Matt for a long time. Oh, you have? Yeah. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. It's a long, mm. long time from maybe yeah. 15, 16 years. Yeah, wow. I remember the, the first night I met Sia, I had a, a new band and I was playing in L.A. for the first time. Mm-hmm. And someone came up to me and they said, uh, we've been invited to Sia's house to go hang out with Pantera. <laughs> And I thought, holy shit, I've arrived. This is it. I'm playing in Los Angeles and I'm going to the Hollywood Hills to hang out with Sia and Pantera. We go up there and then Sia comes flying around the corner in uh, like a superhero costume. And right behind her was a miniature Doberman named Pantera. (laughs) That's great. That's a great story. (laughs) And you've been fast friends ever since. Yeah. That's lovely. Well, thank you, Matt. I really appreciate that you invited me to have this conversation and really wish you well. Um, This is an exciting project that you have going. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Super cool. I I love you both. I was going to say, I love you both too. I love your humanity, even though I don't know you. So I can say that Thanks for all your help, even though it was remote. And yeah, you're amazing. You've helped so many of us. So thank you. And Matt... You've helped so many of us too. (laughs) Same to you, sister. Stay up to date with everything Sia's doing at siamusic.net. And for more information about Alex's work, visit centerforhealthysex.com. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and brought to you with support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, media by Otavia Media, and pressed by TCB Public Relations. Special thanks to David Russell, Gary Millis, Josh and Charlene Lewis, Melissa Kaplan, and Alan Shore for their help with today's episode. Please be sure to subscribe to Sing for Science on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening.